Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? Alright, so full disclosure, we are finally all caught up with each other. We've both seen episodes 1 through 5, and that is all. And you just received the script a few minutes ago and are going to bravely read through it cold with no preparation. Feeling crazy. Alright, with that energy, whenever you're ready, action. Episode 5, Halloween. This episode trips out of the starting gate with a strangely composed shot of trick-or-treaters that awkwardly fades out after just six seconds. Remember that establishing shot of young Mistress Mary's home from episode one they tried to reuse as a day-for-night shot? Well, learning the wrong lesson and suffering delusions of grandeur from that failed ruse, they're now using a snippet of footage from later in this episode just to establish it's Halloween. The trick-or-treaters aren't framed correctly because the real focus of the shot is going to be Jack Marshak entering camera right. To solve this dilemma, the clip fades out so abruptly it might as well be a hard cut. It's the best example I've ever seen of the old editing advice, if you can't solve it, dissolve it. It's also proof of the old adage, two wrongs don't make an establishing shot. All this despite the very next shot including a title that's a play on Halloween. All this despite Mickey's radio announcing it's Halloween. All this despite Mickey putting the finishing touches on her Halloween costume. Thanks for respecting our intelligence, show. It's not our fault you forgot to put a single jack-o'-lantern in her bedroom to visually establish what day it is. Oh wait, you did, but we won't see it for another minute or so. Not sure if that's better or worse. The editing in this episode will continue to jar, but the camera movement, compositions, and production design are some of the best we've seen so far, as evidenced by the dolly move past a lamp to land on Mickey getting ready. Unbelievably, her hair is somehow even bigger than usual. And speaking of over the top, the radio informs us it's both Halloween and a full moon? Episode, you're coming across as desperate. (laughs) A cool POV shot of someone outside watching Mickey turn off the light sets up a payoff that might have worked on paper, but should have been modified on set. The sequence goes like this. The first person POV shot is filmed through something with the opaqueness of a window's insect screen, and the height of the camera indicates a standing figure. However, a moment later... Mickey approaches a dressing screen in the corner of her room and seemingly pulls it down toward herself while screaming. I assume we're meant to believe the hidden figure pushed it over, but as soon as the screen is down, we see something like a mummy sitting on the floor, completely still. Mickey berates Ryan the Lion for scaring her, but when she touches the mummy, it collapses backward from a sitting position to lying flat on the floor, and she screams again. Enter Ryan the Lion, who introduces the mummy as his friend Larry and Mickey berates the both of them for pranking her. Man, was this a convoluted way to introduce Larry. Honestly, the whole double scare aspect was so baffling to me, I forgot to connect it to the POV shot, and it wasn't until I watched it again that I realized there isn't some psycho killer chilling outside Mickey's window for the whole episode that we never get closure on. Speaking of point of view, This prank involved a stranger hanging out in Mickey's room while she got ready for a Halloween party, so she has every reason to be angry. 
Wow, I didn't even think about that. That's hilarious. <laughs> that didn't occur to you? No, it didn't. I don't know how it didn't. I watched it twice, and I totally did not even think about the fact that he was in there the whole time. <laughs> well, you're a pretty good sport regarding creepers. That's true. Yeah, I, I welcome them. You cut them every break. <laughs> it's like Ryan didn't have time to creep on her himself, so he subcontracted the job. That's funny. The prank was an especially poor idea, given that Mickey isn't thrilled their antique store of haunted objects is hosting a Halloween party to rebuild their image in the community. I'm starting to think the partnership between Mickey and Ryan the Lion isn't 50-50, as he always seems to get his way, no matter how stupid the plan. Maybe it's his way with words, as his delivery of, it keeps gas in the curse mobile, referring to their need to sell non-haunted antiques to fund their supernatural activities, actually wins me over. I'm on board with your man this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm always on board with Ryan the Lion. He just speaks to me. Ah, sorry, but the show cuts to a close-up of a, well, a life-size doll with a vibrant orange face, giant wild eyes, and an awkward toothy smile, wearing a sharp business suit and a witch's hat. I don't know what this thing is supposed to be, and it's all the creepier for that reason. Somehow, this show consistently has some of the creepiest dolls in the genre of horror. Was it as weird to you as it was to me? It was super weird, but kind of cute. Um, agree to disagree. <laughs> Next to it, in a perfect juxtaposition of good and bad production design, is a poster for the party depicting a haunted house with a roof that's floating up and away, allowing ghosts to escape into the night. The design is so good, if I didn't already have a killer logo for the podcast, I would absolutely steal this. Truly a tale of two production designs. The joint is a jumpin' with everyone rocking out to some laid-back adult contemporary easy listening. This show's music decisions constitute a war crime. Maybe what's really bothering me, given the era and age of the attendees, the show might actually have chosen a period-accurate playlist for this party. If you want to know what it feels like, go find a clip of any party scene from Weird Science, kill the volume, then play some Steve Winwood over it. Ryan is performing some close-up magic for two blonde women while talking about bust lines and bosoms and generally being a total... Wait, did I say Ryan? My apologies. Force of habit. No! Ryan must have subcontracted being a creep to Jack as well, because your favorite demonologist and mine, Jack Marshak, is trying his hardest to get cancelled, including reaching into a woman's cleavage to produce a small plum. You've got me in a quandary, show. A quandary. For no reason, you're assassinating the character of my favorite character. But if the man I call Cracker Jack Marshak was a creeper, he would be creeping at chess while everyone else is creeping at checkers. Please weigh in on this. <laughs> Please, I have to know your thoughts on this, Hill Street. Well, it, it, it was like a bummer because Jack is like your favorite trustworthy grandpa. And to see him acting creepy is like, oh, like, I don't, it, I don't like, it's unsettling. It's like, it's, it's. It's like that I, I've had moments like this in my real life where someone that I like adore and is like sweet and pure to me says or does something creepy and it like totally changes my view of them. It, it, it soils it. So I did not care for it. I didn't care for it at all. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page on this one. I mean, Larry slipped by you, but I assume this one when he literally reaches into a woman's dress was a bridge too far. Too far, too far. Yeah. Total assassination of his character. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, it's that's not his vibe. He is pure and sweet and trustworthy and 
Asexual. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, very strange. I, I don't get it. No likey. Fans of Party Down, a show that should get its own Curio of the Week shout-out, might enjoy Ryan the Lion announcing the question, Are we having fun yet? Ryan's following compliment of Mickey's witch costume is probably the time to spin our chairs backwards. Acknowledge we've sure had some fun here today, and let the show's wardrobe department know we need to have a brief but sober discussion. First, to make amends, I apologize for every time I called out Mickey and Ryan's lack of undercover costumes, and even the fact the actors often just seem to be wearing their own clothes and not production-provided wardrobe. Clearly, the lion's share of the season's wardrobe budget went to this one episode. That said, the execution is mostly hit, but the misses are almost hypnotically fascinating. A tale of two wardrobes. It actually works to the show's favor that many of the costumes feel a bit cobbled together, the way they would have during this time period, when people didn't take Halloween costumes so seriously and you couldn't just go online and order a cinema-accurate version of any pop culture character you wanted. You're flying through it, so yeah, keep up the energy, loving it, you are in the zone. However, some, including Mickey's, are inscrutable. And then there's the issue of masks. For some reason, the show wants certain characters to have them, whether they make sense or not. Case in point, Ryan's surprisingly refined Venetian merchant ensemble is augmented by a devil mask with glowing eyes worn on the back of his head. And in a moment, we'll meet an old bearded man wearing a comical mask of only a human nose, cheeks, and oversized ears down around his own chin. Instead of, you know, his face? Maybe it would have affected his ability to speak, but I can't help wondering if he simply showed up on set and refused to shave his beard, so the compromise, or punishment, was to wear it over his chin. If it was punishment, the production cut off its nose to spite its face. In the back of the store, Larry and a friend of his discover Ryan's sign prohibiting people from heading down to the basement. As you probably predicted, it depicts Satan dressed as Uncle Sam with the slogan, Keep out! This means boo! Well, this shows more effort than was necessary, but the slogan is clearly handwritten on a second sign attached to the first. So what the hell did the original say? Thanks, show. Now I'll have to do a reverse image search to try to see the obscured portion of the Uncle Satan sign. In a surprise move, Larry and his friend don't go anywhere near the vault, Mickey's concerned from earlier, because they don't have to. A crystal ball is just sitting out in the open. It's not even the curio of the episode, as that will be a rabbit amulet we'll come across later. Still, nice to see something other than a Ouija board for once. Larry calls for the spirits of the night to show him a sign, demonstrating a pretty dramatic stage voice, and the optical effects of the crystal ball's response are the best we've seen on the series so far. Do you concur? Yes, yes, I actually did think that, yeah. Yeah, I was pretty impressed by that. I really felt like I was in uh, Disney's Haunted Mansion there for a moment. Yes, very much looked like that. Um, I just like, and I'm sure you'll get to this, I'm sure you will, but I just could not get over, and, and there's so much stupidity on the show that I guess I should be used to it, but I couldn't get over, it just, I was like, this is so dumb, like, does it have to be this dumb, like, there was no measure taken to keep people from those objects at all. The, the sign was barely there. They could have, like, actually put something up to physically prevent people from going down there. They didn't. It was, like, the one measly sign that's, like, keep out. And as someone who has thrown massive Halloween parties before, people will go everywhere. They will flood your house. <laughs> they will go in your closed bedrooms. They will go everywhere. Like, it's just so foolish. It's so foolish. You really are the stern teacher tapping the sign, aren't you? Yes. It's crazy. Like, that's the best they could do to keep people from 
life-threatening objects. Yeah, it really is the way that Springfield has dealt with the well that Bart spent an entire episode in. Just have Willie tamp down a sign that says, danger, keep out. Yep. Ryan kicks them out and fixes the breaker they turned off moments ago as a prank. Like any good Halloween party, hell, any good party, everyone cheers when the lights are returned to maximum. Then again, adult contemporary soft rock, so I guess that checks out. This is Reagan's America, after all. Maybe they'll really kick it up to 11 and invite soft, off-duty cops to party with them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can actually pin that one on autocorrect. That isn't a minor typo. <laughs> that should have been some off-duty cops. Okay. I was... That is wildly off the mark. I think it totally jumped uh, what I was trying to say there. Okay. Yeah, take it from maybe one more time. Maybe they'll really kick it up to 11 and invite some off-duty cops to party with them. <laughs> On his way out, Ryan the Lion notices the crystal ball must be low on coolant because smoke is pouring out of it. <laughs> to his credit, he realizes he's in over his head and runs off to find an adult he can trust, such as a teacher or a firefighter. Total tangent, but the basement looks more like a crypt in this episode than it ever has before, and discrepancy aside, I dig it. Just not sure about what looks like a sultan's bedroom tucked back in the depths. Just exactly what kind of party is this? Did you notice that? Did you feel like the basement looked a little bit different production design-wise this episode? Yeah, it looked, yeah, it definitely looked better. Everything looked better in this episode. Every, like, the production was just better. I don't know if they suddenly, fun, woo. I don't know if they suddenly got a little bit of budget behind them and were like, yeehaw, or what, but, um, yeah, it did look better. Yeah, I thought it was a step up. When Ryan warns Jack and Mickey, Mickey instinctively asks him, what did you do? It's like the writers themselves think of Mickey and Ryan as a married couple and not, you know, cousins. Turns out the crystal ball is basically the antithesis of the Ghostbusters containment unit. In this case, you don't want to turn it on. As portions of the ceiling fall and all the guests are herded outside, we see a street sign that reveals Curious Goods is located on Druid Avenue. The one thing I didn't mention back in episode 1 is that its address is 999 or 666 upside down. So, 999 Druid Avenue. These are the jokes, people. In a scene that feels more like the show's supernatural than anything we've gotten so far, my man, Crackerjack Marshak, leaps into action. He tells Ryan to draw a pentacle on the floor. Not a pentagram, a pentacle. Is this a case of satanic sem semantic... This, that's a tongue twister. Is this a case of satanic semantic drift? Is this moment a pop culture time capsule? Like watching a movie or show from the 90s that refers to the internet not as the web, but as the net? Hey, Hill Street, just out of curiosity, do you know what I'm referring to there? Oh, yeah. The web versus the net? Yeah. Okay, cool. The show, again, overcomplicates by claiming it was the specific use of Jack's crystal ball on Halloween that allowed Larry to accidentally hook some kind of supernatural force and drop back to curious goods. This moment is punctuated with an exploding jack-o'-lantern, which is a really great idea. I'm surprised we don't see this more often in horror stories. Speaking of great, this scene in which Jack essentially performs an exorcism on the store instead of a person is really well executed. For once, evil has come for them on their own turf, which raises the stakes and they're using actual magic to fight it. The sound design is on point. The compositions build from wides to close-ups. The editing is tight. It's very cinematic, and this might be my favorite scene from the series so far. Also interesting, it's the reverse of most films and shows in which the party scene comes at the end of the episode. By starting with it, it throws off our expectations and leaves us wondering what will happen next. 
Oh, God. That orange-faced business suit doll outside seems subtly different, but just as creepy as ever. Is it different? If so, why is it different? Am I losing my mind? And time. 13 minutes, 7 seconds. Almost one-third in, and this has been a pretty good episode in which basic logic mostly holds and character actions make sense. Don't sweat that little stumble out of the gate with Ryan's prank. This represents a new personal best, show. You should be very proud. So I don't blame you for chucking all reason and common sense out the window while you catch your breath. A faint knock, presumably on the front door, prompts a weary Jack to investigate. Stepping outside, he somehow instantly realizes a little girl with her back to him on a bench 20 feet away is distraught and strolls over to find out what's wrong. The little girl is dressed as a wealthy 1920s dowager? Is it dowager? Yes, that is correct. The little girl is dressed as a wealthy 1920s dowager? Maybe? It's a choice. Yeah, that's all been great. Could I just get, uh, it's a choice one more time? It's a choice. She lost her mom while they were out trick-or-treating, so Jack offers to walk her home. Nice. But if the girl knows how to get home and isn't actually lost, then why? Ugh, never mind. I'm sorry, show. Is that a ghost ninja walking past? I know I said the thrown-together aspect of the costumes was charming, but break time is over. Get your head back in the game and start making sense again. Ah, the repurposed footage from the opening. So nice to see you again. This time I'll mention a nearly 10-foot-tall skeleton decoration hanging on a porch that's almost as distracting as a giant stuffed giraffe from episode 1. As Mickey and Ryan the Lion prepare to defend the fort in Jack's absence, we see another well-executed practical effect of fog slowly spreading across the basement floor. It was shot at a higher frame rate than slowed down in post, which gives it a dreamlike feel that really works and almost reads like it's beginning to climb the stairs. Speaking of really works, ghost Uncle Lewis shows up and he looks great. And his voice is modulated in a creepy way, and he's still rocking the world's largest ascot. And we get a stunned reaction shot out of Mickey and Ryan, then go to commercial. Dare I say, it's perfect. Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. And, once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So, Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is an acting class that I actually started in L.A. in person many, many, many years ago. And the class is actually now online. It is, like, exclusively online. It is a class with a coach called Doug Warrit, W-A-R-H-I-T. And the man is just brilliant. I did several acting classes when I was in L.A., but he was the one I just couldn't quit. I can't quit you! He's just brilliant. Uh, I watched him transform so many actors in that class to just really, really talented actors. So many of his actors are working really successfully now. I've worked with him now for 10 years. I don't live in LA anymore and I'm not trying to be a professional actor anymore, but I do theater and I still work with him across the country on everything that I do. And it's funny because when I do theater, like I recently played Wednesday in The Addams Family, People came up to me after and said, this character is so layered. You made so many interesting choices that I haven't seen before. Like, I've seen this musical before, and I just haven't seen it played that way. And I would love to take the credit for that, but it's it's Doug. He, he helped me 
create those characters and make them so interesting and full. I refuse to do a part without working on it with him. Listen, Spielberg, you're hiring a team. If Doug isn't on board, I walk. <laughs> like, for real, I cannot do anything without him. He will get you work. So if you want to check him out, his website is Doug Warhit, D-O-U-G-W-A-R-H-I-T.com. Disclaimer, we can't legally guarantee he will get you work, but he's awesome. Yes. He's rated one of the top acting coaches in the entire country repeatedly. So yeah, that's my curio of the week. I think he is incredible. My curio of the week is the comic book YouTube channel Jerk Comic, hosted by Uncle Jerk. He specializes in deep dives into the lore of the comic book industry, more so than the books themselves. And when I say deep, I mean deep. His seven-part series about Jack Kirby adds up to just under 12 hours of content and covers not only his work at DC and Marvel, but his contributions to animation, as well as his inadvertent involvement with the CIA and the Iran hostage crisis. If you want to hear a fascinating yarn but don't have half a day to dedicate to it, his two-hour video, Rob Liefeld and the Death Mate Incident, is the one that hooked me, but he does have far shorter videos as well. His other primary focus is spotlighting indie comics and their creators. So if that world has intrigued but intimidated you, maybe dip a toe in with his videos. Even if you only have a casual interest in comics, the passion this man has for them is enthralling and possibly even inspiring. I've never met him, but the one email I received from him was the warmest, friendliest response from a stranger I've ever gotten. So please, join his community, boost his signal, and maybe learn a little something about an underappreciated art form while you're at it. And if you do, tell him you heard about him here. You really shouldn't have taken that commercial break show. You were on such a roll. But now, Jack is lured into an alley, an enormous gate of steel bars drop behind him, right at the entrance. The child turns into a woman between three and three and a half feet tall, and Jack realizes he's been duped by Uncle Lewis. Let's take these one by one. Random side note, I hated her outfit, but that's just a little side note. Ooh, this cat has claws. <laughs> the alley. Either they couldn't find a narrow alley or filming in a space that confined was going to prove too difficult, so they use an alley so wide it's basically a one-way street. That means the iron bars that drop have to also be huge, making it impossible Jack wouldn't have seen them as he approached. Finally, they didn't choose an alley that dead ends at a wall, or maybe it does, but the wall is too far away for us to feel like he's actually trapped. So there are already iron bars in place about 10 to 15 feet in, which, again really should have alerted Jack. I said finally, but I'm also going to add that Jack's cage, aka a publicly accessible alley, is decorated for Halloween with an elaborate jack-o'-lantern on a stool. Why? Okay, now the short woman. We'll later learn her name is Greta, which is weird since even later we'll also learn she's a demon? Why on earth didn't they have her wear a mask and be, you know, a demon? Was it fear of putting her in an unrealistic mask? Because they had no issue with that last episode. They switched from a child dowager to a short woman dowager, and that's what we'll get for the rest of the episode. Not even in her final moments does Greta ever look more demonic than not at all. I understand Uncle Lewis crawling his way out of hell, but how did he bring a helper? We'll never know. It feels like Greta should have been a human acolyte. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it again. It feels like Greta should have been a human acolyte Uncle Lewis knew from before his demise. Maybe someone who also dabbled in the dark arts and has powers that made up for her limited strength. Maybe she could have brought the crystal ball to the party as a way to free Uncle Lewis. 
Forgive me for jumping around, but there was another ghost uncle scene after the commercial break, but before the Great Alley debacle of 87, that I'm going to combine with this ghost uncle scene. By merging these two, we get a full continuity sandwich, with some fresh lore layered between two crusty loaves of established canon. First, Mickey confirms to Ryan the ghost is Uncle Lewis because she's seen him in photographs, so that fits with the implication in episode one they've never met the man. Skipping to the third, Ghost Uncle gestures to a shelf, which swings away to reveal a secret room beyond. Not sure how he did that, since they went out of their way to establish he can't interact physically with this world, but it's fine. And fits with what Jack told us about Uncle Lewis in episode one. He likes secret hiding places. Back then, Hill Street and I speculated on whether or not we'd learn the store has more secrets, and it does. Great, but what's in the secret room? Well... That brings us to the second development that establishes some new lore in the show's typical, needlessly complicated way. Ghost Uncle claims he has until sunrise to undo the curse. I can't be sure, but I take that to mean all the haunted items will no longer be haunted, and Mickey and Ryan the Lion can abandon the store. Their reactions should indicate whether or not that's the case, but neither Mickey nor Ryan seems to have any feelings. But neither Mickey nor Ryan have. Ugh, Jesus. But neither Mickey nor Ryan seems to have any feelings about the curse ending. What is clear is that Ghost Uncle won't reap any benefit. He's doing it for truly magnam magnanimous. So close. Magnanimous? Magnanimous. I feel like enemy. I feel like that fish. Magnanimous. 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 I'm sorry, what fish are you referring to? The one in... Um, little Nemo, who's trying to say, and now I can't even say it, anemone, anemone, I forget what he's actually trying to say. Anemone. He's trying to say anemone. Yeah, that. <laughs> it's real. It's a cute scene. Anemone. Uh oh, uh, have we found our new in inexplicably? Yes, magnanimous, magnanimous. Okay, that was right, right? I believe so. Okay. What is clear is that the ghost uncle won't reap any benefit. He's truly doing. Oh fuck. What is clear is that Ghost Uncle won't reap any benefit. He's doing it for truly magnanimous reasons. Cool. But it couldn't be that simple. Oh, no. Ghost Uncle wants their help undoing his greatest sin, the murder of his wife. I would fault Mickey for her bemused reply of, Murder? But my own reaction is an equally unemotional tabulation of that death against all the other deaths he's caused in a similar... I was so close. I would fault Mickey for her bemused reply of murder, but my own reaction is an equally unemotional tabulation of that death against all the other deaths he's caused and a similarly, uh, and a similar, similarly, fuck me. I'm going to try it again. Similarly, and a similarly bemused response of greatest. <laughs> In Ghost Uncle's private chambers, we discover Curious Goods has an entire heretofore, un heretofore? Yes. In Ghost Uncle's private chambers, we discover Curious Goods has an entire heretofore unexplored wing, complete with antiques that look like they might actually be worth something. The roaring fire and candles are certainly alarming. How long, exactly, have there been multiple sources of live flame in this room? At least more than six months. Weird. I'm definitely burying the headline, which is, Perfectly preserved corpse found in antique store's secret room. But Mickey buries it, too, by simply stating, She's beautiful. Her name is Grace, which is a little confusing, as we already got a new character named Greta. 
Ghost Uncle claims he killed her indirectly, not with his hands, but with his ambition and greed for life. Not sure what that means. I'm guessing it was 90% ambition, but 10% hands what done her in. So now we get even more complication. Ghost Uncle claims her soul is trapped somewhere and he needs the amulet of Zohar from the vault to release her soul from somewhere. And presumably he isn't going to undo the curse unless Mickey and Ryan the Lion help him first. So not quite as magnanimous as he... Magnanimous... Magnam... Fuck. Magnanimous... Magnam... Magnanimous... I hate this. Magnanimous... Magnanimous... <laughs> Magnanimous... <laughs> it's like having a stroke. I just can't do it. Magnanimous... Magnum. Uh, no marm, no marm, no marm, no marm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Magnanimous. Magnam. Magnanimous. Magnanimous. Okay, there we go. And presumably he isn't going to undo the curse unless Mickey and Ryan the Lion help him first, so not quite as magnanimous as he first appeared. Side note, zero discussion between Mickey and Ryan about discovering they have an aunt decomposing in their store. Also... Zero discussion about a window in this secret room. As far as I can tell, that window should look directly into the store and is blown out with light. So, what the hell is the geography of this room? Does it exist out of time and space? Now, unfortunately, I have to return to Crackerjack Marshack, which is something I never thought I would have to say. Now, unfortunately, I have to return to Jacker. But Jacker now, unfortunately, I have to return to Cracker Jack Marshack, which is something I never thought I would have to say. Yeah, that was all fantastic. Can I just get one more read on now, unfortunately, I have to return and just really punch okay. the fortunately, because that's the part that that's specifically the thing I never thought I would have to say is that it's unfortunate to be returning back to him. Now, unfortunately, I have to return to Cracker Jack Marshack, which is something I never thought I would have to say. I should be mining his scenes for comedy gold, but honestly, everything about him trapped in this alley just makes me sad. So let's just rip this band-aid off. Fantastic. Okay, you can jump down to two goons. Two goons and a pickup truck arrive, blasting a few seconds of a big hair glam rock tune that's probably my favorite piece of music from the show thus far. Why couldn't the music episode have music this good? Remember what I said about the charm of some of the costumes feeling thrown together? This isn't what I was referring to. We've got a zombie pro wrestler in a leather jacket and a baseball cap trucker wearing a ballerina tutu. And they've stopped randomly to heckle Jack. None of this makes sense. So, long version short, Jack casts asper aspersions? Aspersions? Aspersions. None of this makes sense. So, long version short, Jack casts aspersions of zombie... <sighs> oh, no. Gonna have to do aspersions again. I know. I am the worst. You are the worst. No one knows what any of these words mean, Robert. Hey, they got the internet at the fingertips. <laughs> they can look it up. Read a book. <laughs> None of this makes sense. So, long version short, Jack casts aspersions on zombie wrestler's manhood. The goons use the truck to bend the bars so they can attack him, but Jack vanishes in a puff of smoke. Only thing I'll add, two of the bars bend perpendicular to the vector of the chain's force, defying the laws of physics because they apparently couldn't afford to rip the whole cage down. There, it's done. Let us never discuss it again. What did you think of those guys, Hill Street? N not a ton, I guess. I don't know. This whole scene didn't make a massive impression on me. I found this whole thing very slow and boring, to be honest. I didn't care for it. Kind of like you said about it making you sad. 
Jack is normally like one of the more entertaining parts of the episodes for me. I really like him and I think they needed to get rid of him for the whole time that Nikki and I mean Nikki Mickey and Ryan were uh, dealing with Uncle Lewis because Jack would have immediately been like no don't do this he's tricking you and so they had to get rid of him somehow so this was how they did it and I think it was just a huge waste of time it wasn't interesting to me. Yeah, he has both the best scenes and the worst scenes in this, this alley scene specifically in this episode. He's hyper competent, so they had to come up with some lame way to get him out of the plot for a little bit so shenanigans could ensue. Right. Agreed. Sounds like your reaction to it is to just sort of tune out, whereas my reaction was to get angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like yours better. I'm going to try that next time. It's good fuel. It keeps you powered. Yeah. <laughs> Intercut with all that nonsense, Mickey and Ryan lament Jack's absence, but are both totally cool with giving Ghost Uncle the amulet of Zohar, which the prop department clearly had to whip up quickly as it's basically a rabbit or hare trying its damnedest to be an Ouroboros? Yeah, Ouroboros. Gonna need a few more yoga classes, bugs. In one of those classic... I've watched it six times and I still don't know what's happening or why moments. Mickey holds the amulet over the dead woman. It glows. Ghost Uncle yells, No! Mickey and Ryan look around confused and Ghost Uncle, now holding the amulet, takes physical form and a seamless transformation. That's twice this episode! The wrong character yelled! Ryan the lion tries to choke him, but Ghost Uncle, oh right, Corporeal Uncle sends him flying. I realize that was a stunt, but I have to say, R.G. Armstrong, the actor who plays Corporeal Uncle, is much more spry than I would have expected from episode one, and even though he's also much more evil, he has so much fun being evil, I like him a lot more. Corporeal Uncle locks him in the secret room and takes off with Greta in the Winchester mobile. wonder if he was angry about them adjusting the mirrors and radio stations and such. Haha. <laughs> We cut back to the Jack storyline I covered earlier, then back to the store to hear Mickey's muffled yells for help. Even in this futile effort, Ryan the Lion couldn't be bothered to help. No, really, he'll confirm that right after the commercial break. Commercial break! If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now, for free, at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. Ryan the Lion tells Mickey to stop yelling for help, then spots the fireplace, now sans fire, and gets an idea. Like most 80s fireplaces, it's somehow a passage to a storage area. What is the geography of this store? To avoid that kind of question, Mickey and Ryan appear from off-screen and without a hint of soot or ash. Mickey asks Ryan where Corporeal Uncle is, shushes him the moment he softly replies, then continues speaking, which, again, has me wondering if the writers of this episode knew their cousins and not a married couple. Mickey opens the nearest grimoire, which, thankfully, has info on the amulet. Maybe should have read that first. Or just waited for Jack. 
or asked how to undo the curse so they could handle it. Anyway, her character is once again impunged when she claims she can't decipher all the text because it's in Old English. And uh, let's do that one more time. It's impugned. Yeah. You can just... Figured. <laughs> can I get that? Yeah, figured again with that same sadness. Yeah, figured. <laughs> nice. I was too good to pass up, but I laughed over you, so I want that clean because that's going in. <laughs> you can take it from any way. You don't have to start at the top. Anyway, her character is once again impugned when she claims she can't decipher all the text because it's in Old English, which is still English. However, she learns everything they need to know, so she probably just meant it was going to take her a minute, so withdrawn. Corporeal Uncle is currently on the hunt for a corpse to try on so he can remain here permanently, so fine, show. I guess I'll just call him Uncle L from here on out. Plus, my use of Corporeal is probably driving Hill Street crazy. Apparently, the show feels our overcomplication levels are dangerously low, so here's another bucket load. The cadaver Uncle L needs can't be the result of a violent death, presumably just to justify why he can't murder someone. Okay. Then, you realize you had one in the other room? Oh, but he probably wants a male body, you're thinking. Nope. In a moment, he'll tell Greta he really doesn't care. Oh, but that was his wife. So, he already used her as part of an escape plan and doesn't seem to care what happens to her now. Granted, Mickey and Ryan speculate cemetery bodies are too old, and his wife has been dead a while, but she looks perfectly preserved. Anyone? Am I the only one seeing this? Mickey and Ryan might be building their house on guesses, but at least there's something like actual detective work going on for once instead of just showing up at an address they got from the sales manifest. Once they decide cemeteries are out, they land on mortuaries and pick the closest one. The odds are low, but given what they have to work with, not a bad plan. On their way out, they leave a note for Jack, so I guess he won't have to teach them a lesson in which J. Walter Weatherman's arm falls off. At a mortuary the size of Jesus. At a mortuary the size of Professor Xavier's mansion, Uncle L appears to use the amulet of Zohar to bypass the locked front door, and I don't mean he uses magic. Almost certain he uses the amulet like a credit card. Sure. Why not? And real jerk move making Greta lug your bag around. Do you know what I mean by uses the amulet like a credit card? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the way that you, like, thieves break in and stuff. Yeah. Is that still a thing? I mean, modern doors are so sophisticated and digital. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that in a TV show or movie where you take a credit card and wiggle it between the lock to, but you're familiar? I'm sure people get that reference, but no, I don't think you can still use them that way anymore. Yeah. I'm not even sure you ever could, but it worked for cinema. That's funny. Strange this otherwise modern mortuary is full of Wild West era wooden coffins. Isn't that the last thing you want for cremations? Uncle L isn't impressed and dismisses the whole crematorium situation with the scathing gesture of not worth my time that nobody does like the elderly. Neat that handheld camera work is used for one of the first times in the series. Unfortunately, it's used to capture filler of Uncle L and Greta finding only violent deaths. Speaking of... Why is there a bloody handprint on the wall beside the doorway? Was this set being used for a zombie movie later in the day and they weren't allowed to remove it? Mickey and Ryan weren't kidding about starting with the closest mortuary because they literally ran there. Was that faster than a cab? If so, how? Good thing their hunch was bang on. The editor must have had a brighter monitor than this because we linger on this shot of them arriving at the front door for way too long. So I presume they were doing something we were supposed to be able to see but is now lost like tears in rain. Gotta love Ryan's blind optimism that he just assumed he could pick a lock because he's seen Jack do it. It's right for the characters, so I'll give the show that, but I have to deduct a few points for not taking the extra step and having Ryan be Houdini for Halloween. 
Houdini had a distinct by modern standards haircut Ryan could probably approximate with his own hair, but a wig if needed. Plus then, he could have been doing the sleazy magic act earlier instead of Jack, which makes so much more sense character-wise. Mickey actually calls Ryan Houdini earlier in the episode, but I really think that was just a weird coincidence and wasn't setting up this moment. And speaking of missed opportunities, a hearse arrives, and the driver has just enough time to deliver the exposition that the deceased died in his sleep at Metro Hospital before Uncle El pips Jesus, this is a long sentence. <laughs> <laughs> the deceased died in his sleep at Metro Hospital before Uncle El picks up a giant crate and breaks it over the driver's head. Now, this is probably how it had to go down, as the driver would most likely know who does and doesn't work at the mortuary. But man, oh man, if ever there was a character uniquely positioned to bluff his way through being an undertaker, it's Uncle El. I'll defer to the expert and ask Hill Street, but on me opinion? In me opinion? Yeah, it's just full on Spanish. In me opinion? I don't speak Spanish. I speak French. Oh, I'll start working that in then. <laughs> in me opinion, every single aspect of Uncle L screams, I run a funeral home. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's actually very funny. With the strong, able-bodied young driver now dead or unconscious, an old man and a tiny woman struggle to drag a coffin out of the hearse. Maybe you should have picked a different helper. Back up and get a running start on this one. Yeah. Maybe you should have picked a different helper, Uncle L. Or not brained the help. Ryan finally picks the lock, which begs the question, why did he have to? Did Uncle L lock it behind him after he picked it? If so, why? Outside Curious Goods, there's a homeless guy sleeping on a bench who has so many newspaper pages over him, you might not even realize he's there. So why have an actor lie here at all? He's truly the motorcycle in the rain of this episode. Between this and all the homeless people in episode 4, A Cup of Time. Ugh, the title still makes me shudder. I have to wonder if the show was actually trying to comment on some formerly unknown homeless crisis gripping Canada in the 80s. With only 14 minutes to go, Crackerjack Marshak is finally back on the case. I can't imagine how disappointed he must be in Ricky and Ryan upon finding their note. Speaking of that, the note doesn't say which mortuary they went to investigate, so it sure would be an amazing coincidence if he just showed up at the right one. As Jack heads deeper into the shop, the camera pans with him, but booms down as he leaves frame to settle on a tombstone decoration with an in-memory-of inscription and a name I can't read. Wish I could, so I could figure out if this was an actual tribute to a deceased member of the show. Back at the mortuary, Uncle L has really made himself at home. Like the party scenes at Curious Goods, the production design for the satanic recorporation looks great. Candelabras everywhere, body under a sheet on an ersatz. Yes. Candelabras everywhere, body under a sheet on an ersatz altar, giant pentagram on the floor. Uh, sorry. Pentacle. It's enough for Mickey and Ryan the Lion to make one look and say, nope. Mickey and Ryan actually strategize to work together for once. Unfortunately, their plan makes no sense. Mickey is going to lure Greta away. Okay, so far so good. Then Ryan the Lion, in an effort to retrieve the amulet, is going to hide behind some boxes. Then distract Uncle L? What? Why? No, not distract. Attack. Jump out and rip that amulet off of him. Distracting him is the opposite of what you should do. Mickey's contribution works fine. Greta gives chase and, against all odds, actually catches up. Then, wait, what's happening? Is Mickey just scared of Greta? No, I think she's being hypnotized. Okay, not good. Wait, Greta has telekinesis? Telekinesis? She must, because she's moving Mickey around like she's frozen in carbonite. 
Mickey, floating prone in her witch makeup, looks remarkably like Zool hovering over Dana Barrett's bed. Dana Barrett's bed. Okay. Mickey, floating prone in her witch makeup, looks remarkably like Zool hover... <laughs> looks remarkably like Zool hovering over Dana Barrett's bed. I guess it's sort of the filter of the 80s compressing all women's fashion and hair slash makeup choices into a singular aesthetic. Maybe it's Uncle L's southern accent, but his seats don't feel like a necromantic reanimation ceremony so much as an evangelical tent revival. But I suppose I'm splitting hairs. Ryan the Lion, not fully grasping the concept of keep it simple, stupid, executes his plan of hurl something from the shadows as a distraction, then charges across the entire room. Damn it, man. Don't you see? It was never the magic thing you hurled. It was you all along. You are the distraction. Stay in the shadows, circle behind him, jump out and grab the amulet. I assure you, it will distract him if that's so important to you. I can't tell if Uncle Ella is super strong when he hurls Ryan for the second time this episode, or if Ryan is just a total spaz, but Ryan stumbles halfway back across the room, ricochets off some boxes, then runs away. Greta stops him, hypnotizes him, then marches him off to his doom. Presumably, the bean counters saw the number two before the line item Levitation FX crossed it out, then replaced it with the number one. In a needlessly padded scene, Mickey and Ryan are locked in wooden coffins and sent down the conveyor belt to be cremated. Classic. If only one of them had been established as an escape artist or something, this could be a great payoff. So, show, we're cool, but I have a friend who's wondering, why is Uncle L saluting Hitler? Conversely, I have to admit, seeing the coffin shake as they head toward a roaring fire is actually the correct time to cut to commercial. You've really been on point with that this episode, show. Well done. Commercial break! Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. So last episode, you asked me a Crystal Ball question of the week. Totally blindsided me. Took me right off my feet. I'll ask you now what I had intended to ask last time. Do you think we will see Birdie again? Yes, I do. I thought about that when I was watching the episode. I was like, she seems like she could be a recurring character. She's a solid actress. She's interesting. She didn't die. <laughs> Despite all evidence to the contrary, she she beat the odds. She sure did. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I was surprised that she lived. Um, and yeah, she just seemed to fit in well with the cast and with Jack and everything. So yeah, I feel like if they know what's good for them, we'll see her again. I really can't judge with this show. I don't put anything past it. It seems super weird to have her just waltz in like she owns the place and then never see her again. But if any show is going to do it, it's this one. But yeah, I'll come down on the side of we see her at least one more time. Yeah, I mean, th every time I think they're going to zig, they zag, so I'm not making any promises, but you would think we would see her again. And then since we're on this subject anyway, and it's such a simple crystal ball question, I guess I'll ask, and you kind of brought it up anyway, do you think they will continue the, um, I'm not going to call it a love story, but a love interest angle between her and Jack Marshak? I would think so, because they love to tease things that they never follow through on. That's their whole memo, so probably. Copy that. It is interesting because uh, this episode, episode five, starts to hint at a backstory between 
Jack Marshak and Uncle Lewis's wife. Yeah, I would say more than hint. Yeah, no, there's definitely some affection there. So yeah, be interesting to uh, see that moving forward. And then that provides an interesting backdrop against which to have Birdie show affection for him. Not a love triangle since one of these people is deceased. But then again, it's a supernatural show. So all bets are off, folks. Yeah. It's truly anyone's ball game. Exactly. Well, what do you know? Crackerjack Marshak arrived at the correct mortuary. Fancy that. And we know it's the same mortuary because the camera lingers on the mortuary side before zooming out to reveal Jack. Either the Abraham Stark mortuary, established 1946, is real and paid the production a boatload to advertise, or the show was concerned we might think Jack showed up at a different mortuary with an identical Winchester mobile parked out front. Not a chance. My man not only picked the right one, but he ran there. For the third time, the lock on the front door is picked. Or Jack keeps a key to every mortuary in town, which I like to believe he does. Why do you keep locking the door? Like Mickey and Ryan, Jack takes one look at Uncle L's ceremony and closes the door, as if to say, I'll just deal with that later. As he passes a lock in the hall, we get sucker punched with the episode's equivalent of six months ago. It's been two hours since Mickey and Ryan arrived. Even in the world of the story, it feels like five minutes. Hey, you know what would make sense here? Jack hearing Mickey and Ryan screaming for help, but then how would coincidence swoop in to save the day? So Jack opens a random door and finds their coffins heading towards certain incineration. Not long ago, I painted the image of coincidence being shoveled into the boiler fires powering this show, and here we get about as close to that visual metaphor as we can. To be fair, maybe Ryan the Lion's no-yelling policy was still in place from earlier. After all, he never did formally rescind it. As usual, Mickey gets the worst of it regarding their rescue, being dumped on the floor then slapped awake, neither of which happens to Ryan. More bizarre, her coffin was first in line, so when she screams that Ryan is in the box and the music builds as if there's drama, there totally isn't. When asked what happens if Uncle L finishes his spell, Jack tells Mickey they'll find themselves in the middle of a living nightmare. Um, could you be more specific? The gang formulates a new plan. Do the same thing they just tried and completely failed at. Okay, okay, not exactly. Instead of even attempting to get the amulet back, they're just going to stall Uncle L so he doesn't complete the spell before sunrise. How? Unclear. This is also when we learn Greta is a demon. Not that that makes any difference with five minutes to go. With Greta lured away, Junkle... Junkle. With Greta lured away, Jack and Uncle L have the kind of confrontation scene you'd have thought they'd save for the end of the season. So seeing it here really does put you on your heels and makes you wonder where the series will go next. Honestly, it's about as epic as the confrontation between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader in A New Hope. Both characters are relatively new to us, this is their first scene together, and the confrontation basically boils down to, you forgot to not pick evil. No lightsabers here, but Uncle L hurls what I think is an actual fireball at Jack, and what it lacks in grandeur, it more than makes up for in believability. What did you think of their confrontation? Um... Not as epic as I'm making it out to be? No, 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 I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, I just, I don't know, I wanted more. For, I wanted more dialogue. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Instead of them just each reading curses at each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted 
because they actually had a relationship, I wanted to hear more about that. Like, I, I thought that the, the action was good and all that, but I kind of wanted more of a, I wanted to see more of their relationship. You know, it was like our first chance to see that. Maybe even a little bit of vulnerability on each side. I don't know. Maybe I know they just. I don't like when villains are pure evil. You see not nothing there. No humanity. No softness. I think it makes a villain more rounded and interesting when there's like a little bit of something there, but they still choose evil. And I just would have liked to have seen more of their dialogue and relationship. I thought that would be interesting. And I was just impressed by all the flashy lights. I guess <laughs> I thought that fireball was really cool. <laughs> I think that was an absolutely practical fire effect. I think he actually chucked something flaming at uh, Chris Wiggins. The fire effect was was uh, pretty cool. I was impressed by that. And I mean, I like the whole production design in general. All the candles, the pentacle on the floor. Yeah, me too. I, I, I liked, like you said, the supernatural feel of this episode. I really enjoyed that. And although it's not personal, just the idea of them both reading from their respective books and kind of going head to head in a magic duel was kind of cool. Yes, agreed. It was not intimate, but it did feel grand and epic. Yeah. The difference between this and the original Star Wars is once again, this shows a tale of two series nature. Jack and Uncle L squaring off feels like a season or series ending conflict, while Greta playing hide and seek with Mickey and Ryan is all kinds of goofy. It's phantom menace levels of tonal inconsistency. Whoops, you overfilled your glass show, and some of that goofy spilled over into the Jack versus Uncle L showdown, where we get some 60s Spider-Man intensity pointing. They actually cut away from it, so no idea how long it went on for. I should be invested in the outcome of Greta chasing Mickey and Ryan, but I'm just wondering why the morgue looks ransacked. Did they shoot multiple takes and didn't reset after each? Wait, this show doesn't do multiple takes. <laughs> Also, why on earth is a corpse on the floor positioned on its side with its foot outstretched? Ah, I see. They want Greta to leap over it, but it's too wide if lying on its back or stomach. Fine. I mean, wrong, but fine. But what about the leg? Rigor mortis? Sure, whatever. Maybe it was the actor desperately trying to add something to what he hoped would be a breakout role in Corpse Number 4. Yeah, well, welcome to the big time, kid. I stand by my claim that the title bout between Jack and Uncle L feels epic, but I'm really not sure if Jack is reciting an anti-curse or just serving as a child distracting a parent who's on an important work call. Meanwhile, Greta, a demon, is reduced to winding up then hurling a chair at our heroes. It misses, hitting a breaker box instead. She then leaps the sideways corpse again, but trips over a small, inconsequential container and wipes out, fatally stabbing herself with something she wasn't even holding? Wait, no. On fourth or fifth viewing, I now realize she landed on the remains of the damaged stool she just hurled, impaled herself, then fell onto her back with part of a stool leg poking out of her chest. All off screen. Well, I'm glad you figured that out, because I had no idea. Oh, good. You were as baffled as I was on the first three viewings? Yeah, I was thinking, what the hell is she dying on? And I watched it twice and gave up. Yeah, you had to piece together that the stool, after hitting the breaker box, after serving the purpose that we assumed that's what it was for, but you have to then headcanon that it fell to the ground, shattered, and that when she stumbled over basically nothing, she also fell onto it. And again, that all happened off screen. Yeah. I have learned to just not ask questions with this show. If I can't figure it out, I move on. Whereas I watch it 10 times. Yeah, because you're nuts. After the crazy clown playground of episode one that almost drove me into madness, I've learned to protect myself and just move on. Ah, mental barriers. Yes. You just start reciting your mantra. Yeah. 
The show now tips its hand with an insert shot of the hall clock they will use again later, but we're too lazy to film with the second hand moving and remaining still. What's the problem? The frozen second hand reveals to the audience a minute early what they were probably already suspecting. Greta inadvertently killed the power, so Uncle L isn't up to speed on the actual time. I bring this up now because it fits so nicely with Greta. A demon, from hell, clumsily killing herself in the very same scene. It's not even a do-ox- what, how do I say this? Do- Deus ex machina. Deus ex machina. Yeah, deus ex machina. Deus ex- deus ex machina. It's not even a deus ex machina. I suppose it's closer to Diablos ex machina, but I'm tempted to just coin it anti-drama. Oh, very interesting. You had a trouble with deus ex machina, but not Diabolus ex machina. Very revealing. <laughs> I was going to say, that's more up my alley. Mickey and Ryan are horrified by Greta's death for reasons unknown. Then she explodes, leaving only her costume's necklace. Mickey and Ryan are horrified by Greta's death for reasons unknown. Then she explodes, leaving only her costume's necklace. What sense does that make? Uncle L is winning the Bible bash, with Jack now down on his knees. But Mickey and Ryan inform him the clock has stopped, and I'm sure the production accountants were thrilled they got to reuse that clock insert here. The shades are thrown open, Uncle L is blasted with light, although I don't think light actually had to hit him to vanquish him, and Uncle L is erased piecemeal in a green screen effect that looks as bad as his transition from ghost to flesh looked good. Do you want it to say Crack Jack, or do you want Crack Jack? No, Cracker Jack, yeah. I thought Crack Jack was a fun mix-up. Maybe that's why he got handsy earlier in the episode. Yeah, I maybe mean, he's doing a little, you know. It was the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Cracker Jack Marshak then hits us with, The man can make an exit. See, Ryan, that's how you deliver a one-liner. This shot of the three of them really does reveal what an expressive face Mickey has. It counterpoints Ryan's deadpan nicely, with Jack adapting his level of intensity to the moment. Back in Curious Goods, is Mickey sweeping with a broom because she's still dressed as a witch? My speculation on that minor point is blown up when Jack casually drops the bomb that Grace, Uncle L's wife, was real, but it's not only not in that secret room he even he didn't know about. Good gosh, this is a tough sentence. Uh, how about Uncle L's wife? Uncle L's wife was real, but is not only not in that secret room even he didn't know about, but never was. Yeah, okay, great. Let's not get too deep in the weeds. Let's adjourn here and continue next meeting. All in favor, say aye. Jack describes Grace in such a poetic way, it's clear he had feelings for her. So, internet shippers, get out that big net, because we might have just landed a thruple. In fact, his performance is so powerful, you almost don't notice Ryan the Lion has his arm around Mickey again. She reveals her desire that someone speaks about her the way Jack describes Grace. Yeah, I got bad news for you, kiddo. It ain't gonna be your fiancé, Lloyd. Did you also notice that her eyes shot over to Ryan when she said it? No, I don't think I caught that. Yeah, she says, I wish someone would talk about me that way, and then she looks at Ryan, and then looks back. Very interesting, especially since that's as close as Ryan comes to creeping this episode. Yeah, I know, he's kind of backed off of it. They're almost acting like she misses his affections or something. Yeah, I don't know. She might be uh, getting worn down. I know. I ship them. I ship them. Ryan implies they'll have to go through something again next Halloween just because that's Halloween for you. Intriguing, but not sure why they all take that as a given. But it's a moot point because Jack name checks the epon eponymous? How do you say that? That was pretty close. Eponymous. Eponymous. Okay. Yeah. Think like hippopotamus. Eponymous. Eponymous. <laughs> eponymous. We went to the zoo to see the eponymous. Eponymous, yeah. 
But it's a moot point because Jack name checks the eponymous date of Friday the 13th. And it's a mere two weeks away in their timeline. Can't wait to see if they make good on that idle threat. This relatively strong episode ends with a wise decision to ditch a freeze frame ending in favor of a nice camera move into a well-composed shot that excludes Mickey and Ryan to favor both Jack and the excellent production design of the episode. Well, you got my vote. The still image for the credits suddenly reminds me. This episode also broke the convention of returning objects to the vault. I guess the amulet of Zohar followed Uncle L directly to hell. Figures. It did less harm than any curio so far. But the 80s were tough on crime. Guess it needed a better lawyer. Yay. So I think, yeah, in the future, we need to do Hill Street ships. You can start <laughs> writing some fanfic, some slash fic. Oh, it's going to be steamy. What did you think of this episode, Hill Street? Uh, it was a low-tier episode for me. How would you rank the first five episodes? We need to list them out so I can put them in order. So there was the Cupid one, Cup of Time, Mary and the Doll, this one, and then the pen one, right? You got it. Okay, so I think favorite to least favorite is going to be, and this order I think is going to surprise you. Cup of Time is my number one. Yes, I'm surprised. Yep, I knew you would be. Cup of Time was my number one. I'm actually not because you kind of surprised me last episode when you said that you really liked that one. So I was like, something about your energy made me think, oh, I think this might actually be her favorite. Yeah, I just enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I liked the weird rocker thing. I just, I, I thought I liked the bizarre songs. I liked the bizarre, like, hey, I'm just showing up in the woods with a cup of tea. Drink it. I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> it's actually very 60s Batman, what you just did. That was really nice. Thanks. Yeah, I liked that one. I think cup of teas, I mean, cup of tea should have been called have a cup of tea. Cup of Time is my number one. Are you having a ball on Hill Street? <laughs> it's going to happen. We're going to make that a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Cup of Time is my number one. Mary and the Doll is my number two. Cupid's my number three. The Pen, the Crazy Pen is my number four. This is the actual names of the episodes, people. And then Halloween is my number five. Oh, very nice. What about you? You know, that's true, actually, because also you, uh, you like the music ironically from a cup of time yes whereas i was like oh this is just awful <laughs> i think it's hilarious yeah it's such a tough question to answer because again it's the tale of two series nature of this show i swear every one of these episodes was directed halfway through by someone really competent and then they either were fired or more more likely quit and they were replaced with someone incompetent that they just grabbed at a moment's notice I don't mean halfway through, like the first half is good and the second half is bad. It's a, they shot a portion and then you edit it together and it goes like good, bad, good, bad, good, bad all the way through these things. Right. Yeah. If I'm putting them in order, I'm going to be honest. I really like this one. I mean, I think the bad parts are really bad, but the parts that this one executes well, I like enough and they seem totally consistent with, I guess, at least what I would say the show is supposed to be in my mind, I think. I mean, <laughs> I admit, we've been pretty brash saying what this show should and shouldn't be, despite the fact that you and I have both only seen five episodes. And really, even at episode one, we were making some pretty firm statements about what does and doesn't fit with the tone of the show that we were only just watching for the very first time. But I would say that you can 
say like, oh, well, the opening credit sequence of this show is totally very different than anything else that happens in the episode. So that right there is a tonal contradiction. I think you can make those kind of comparisons and you can compare the show against itself pretty quickly. So I, I don't know if we're totally out of line in, in making some of these snap judgments. Uh, I am trying to appreciate the show on its own terms. You had mentioned last time, in fact, um, and it kind of gave me a moment of pause and, and made me think, especially when I was editing, about the campiness of the songs. And it did almost hit me like, like, wait a minute, is this like 60s Batman? Are we are we the crazy ones? Like, <laughs> is this just camp and we're, we're looking at it all wrong? Is this supposed to be a wacky, silly kind of horror comedy? But I don't think so. I think it's just totally inconsistent. But I don't know anymore. I don't know. I tap out. What are your thoughts on that, Hill Street? Are we the crazy ones? It's hard to say. And it's possible it's somewhere in the middle that, like, they do want it to be, like, a serious, supernaturally show, but that they, the writers can't help themselves and they put stuff in that's fun and silly, like the relationship between Mickey and Ryan. Like, they know that that's kind of, like, silly and inappropriate and that they're teasing on something inappropriate. They may, they may do that in fun and that we're taking it too seriously. It's hard to say. I know you've long taken the stance that they were doing that in fun. They're having fun writing this relationship between these two cousins. And I don't know if I'm on board. I think they just might be out of their minds. Maybe. Yeah. Like, I'm almost willing to argue that there is a carbon monoxide leak in the writer's room. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, uh, you know, again, that's that's part of the fun. That's part of the mystery is watching episode after episode. And it's just seeing the show reveal itself and then trying to circle back and be like, okay, does that make any more sense now? Or what were they going for? Did they have this thought out in advance or are they just totally winging it? Right. Exactly. I'll finish ranking them as best I can. I would say I actually think I like this one best. Partly that stems from the fact that I'm such a big Cracker Jack Marshak fan. And again, I think when he gets his moments in this, he's great. I was serious. Like, I think it felt a bit like Supernatural where he's like, I know what's going on. Okay, draw a pentacle, clear everyone out, set up this, set up that, grab this antique, open this spell book. Specifically drawing that pentacle on the floor felt very supernatural to me. I mean, you, you tell me off the top of your head, out of what, 14 seasons, what percentage of episodes involved drawing something on the floor? First of all, it was 15 seasons and... In the first five seasons, oh my god, that happens so much. They lighten up on it after that. Then they have these pentagrams that are already there or whatever. They have them already in their car or something. But I would say 30 to 40% of the episodes, yeah, it's incredibly common. As the actors got older, they're like, guys, having a stoop down, bending <laughs> over to draw these things every episode, take after take, it's, re it's really starting to kill our lower backs. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Can we not? Can we? How, how about the walls, guys? Is there anything wrong with drawing on the walls? <laughs> At the end of the day, a pentacle's a pentacle. The demon doesn't care where it is. <laughs> this episode in particular also felt very cinematic. Uh, the combination of all the background, both on the trick-or-treating city street scenes and then inside the store, that's kind of a big deal for a show like this. People don't realize how difficult it is and how much it slows things down to have background. So good on them for doing that. But between that and, again, just camera compositions, camera movements, a lot of great production design, and then, yeah, seeing Jack shine the fact that the party came at the beginning very strange and then you got this pretty epic feeling showdown an actual confrontation between jack and uncle lewis i thought it blew the mickey and young mistress mary merry-go-round scene out of the water 
in terms of epic showdowns mm -hmm. for those reasons. And, I mean, and also we get a little bit of insight into Jack's character and this relationship, and it deepens the mythology between the existing characters and the lore. So yeah, I, I'm going to say this episode, the lows were super low, but I thought the highs were really high. And then just to cycle through the others, I would say, I'm going to go ahead and put episode one at the bottom. And I think some of that's just the whole first episode thing. We're just kind of meeting everyone, establishing people. Didn't love the performance of the actor that played Lloyd, and we haven't seen him since, so there you go. There's some baggage we can throw overboard. Mm -hmm. And then of the remaining episodes, I think I might go episode two, The Poison Pen. It's a tough call between A Cup of Time and Cupid's Arrow, because Cupid's Arrow, like this episode, I thought the highs were really high and the lows were really low. I really liked how dark it got with Eddie and how creepy he was and how of all the characters we met so far, he seemed like full on serial killer. The way the actor portrayed that was really interesting and it got super dark, had a pretty climactic scene itself involving a sort of a vertical chase through that boiler room. So a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, you know what, I think for those reasons, my own tastes, I'm gonna go ahead and make that number three. And then, uh, in fact, you know what, no, I'm gonna reorder. I'm going to reorder. I'm going to go episode five, Halloween. Episode three, Cupid's Quiver. Episode two, The Poison Pen, largely because it's campy, because we get that Porky's homage scene, which is just so weird and inappropriate. And then I'll go episode four, A Cup of Time. And then finally, episode one, The Inheritance. It's funny. We have like opposite opinions. On this, yeah. Given that usually we're on the same page on so many things, but we do have a little bit different tastes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, actually, have you seen the uh, Universal Monster films? And if so, what do you think about those? Which ones are you referring to? What are generally called the classics. Uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Bride of Frankenstein. I loved them when I was little. I haven't seen them because my mom kind of let me watch horror stuff when I was little but nothing crazy scary and I didn't find those crazy scary when I was little so I I loved them but they're not something that I really choose to watch now they're just too dated for my taste but I mean when I was I don't know 10 maybe I, I loved them they were your gateway drug exactly exactly copy that but you saw all of those mm, I don't know if I saw Wolfman but I've definitely seen the other ones what would you say is your favorite is it Bride of Frankenstein? Bride of Frankenstein, yeah. What do you think of Creature from the Black Lagoon? Just curious. That's my favorite. I don't remember my specific thoughts, so I'm guessing I liked it. I don't remember not liking it. Um, I, honestly, I should probably rewatch those and because there's probably so much about them that I would appreciate now. Why is that one your favorite? Because I like uh, scuba diving and the ocean and all things underwater. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know I've seen it. I don't remember my specific thoughts about it but i now you're making me curious to watch it again i got to see it once in 3d in a movie theater that was gorgeous and some of the best 3d i've ever seen that's really cool there was a movie i watched last year a horror movie it was called the deep house yeah i think i remember you mentioning that to me one time thought about recommending it before i watched it because it was literally about a haunted house underwater where people dive down and explore this haunted house underwater and i was like what a cool concept i was so excited to watch it it looked beautiful from the cover and like the little tiny clips i saw oh my god that movie was so fucking bad do not watch it i'm not recommending it so disappointing because i love the concept and it just sounded and looked fascinating and like the set was all there they had this really cool old house underwater that they had people swimming through 
but it was literally almost unwatchable. It was so bad. So can't recommend that one. Sorry. Yeah, that was my memory because I remember you telling me about it, but I also made no effort to check it out. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure she said that was absolutely god awful. Oh, God, it was so bad. Yeah, no, don't watch it. But disappointing. Someone else should remake that idea and make it good. Both for me, but for the folks at home, what are your thoughts on, like, the Friday the 13th movies or Nightmare on Elm Street? I like Nightmare on Elm Street. I like the first one. I think it's great. Friday the 13th is a little too slashery for me, and I'm just not a huge slasher person. I like scary supernatural type of movies. I like ghost movies. I like possession movies. I think that stuff is scary. Someone, like, chasing you with a knife is just... Believe me, I know that should be scarier because that's more real-life type of stuff where people can come up and kill you. But I just don't find slashers particularly scary or interesting, so... Unless that slasher is a haunted doll. Well, you, exactly, yeah. That is interesting. That is cool and creepy. I loved doll movies as a kid. I think I talked about that in our first episode. Of but... that sort of slasher area of Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger... You would actually probably put Chucky as your favorite out of those four, yes? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I still like Chucky to this day. I still have Chucky stuff to this day. Have you seen more than just the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie? Yes, I've seen three of them. Okay, and how many of the Friday the 13th movies have you seen? Oh, gosh, several. I don't know how many, but several. And I think I've seen pretty much all the Halloween movies, even though I really don't care for them that much. Okay, so you've given the slasher genre in particular a fair shake. Yeah, you know, it's interesting... Every time that I have dated somebody and they hear that I like horror, they always take me to a slasher because that's how the general public, not true horror fans in my opinion, view horror as a slasher movie. So if there's a slasher out, they're like, oh, I'm taking you to see this movie. And I appreciate that gesture. So I'll play, I'll play along and I'll kind of tell them, oh, this is more my preference of movie later. But it's just interesting to me that people see those movies as the type of horror movie that horror fans like not that not that horror fans can't and don't like those i'm sure plenty do but to me slashers are not like the true horror genre in my mind at least yeah that's fair i was gonna say be careful be careful driving that wedge through our audience old street <laughs> yeah no i i have one of my best friends his name is bradley oh bradley shout out to bradley friend of the show he loves slashers. He's a huge horror fan, and he absolutely loves slashers, and I respect it. I have no, I have no hate for slashers at all. Just for me personally, they don't, they don't totally interest me. Not like I wouldn't watch it. There are some that I like. If they have a really good story, I can enjoy them. Like uh, Happy Death Day is technically a slasher, but I really like the first one. The, the second one I thought was god-awful, but I really like the first one. And that's a slasher, but I thought it was a really fun one. So I like that one, but... In general, I like a creepy, haunting, disturbing story, you know? Hey, some of my best friends are slasher fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. You like the atmosphere. You like the gothic stuff. You see many of the Hammer horror films? What's that? Oh, they're, um, they were a bunch of films that were made in England in like the, uh, I believe, late 60s through early 70s. They would often revisit like the classic Universal monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, but they were in color. They were a little bawdier, but they are, uh, you know, quite beloved. Probably. Okay. I was literally about to say probably not then. Probably. I feel like I've seen everything. It's like all my mom and I do is watch these horror movies. So there's a decent chance I have, but I, I can't say for sure. Okay. Okay. If you remember seeing like a Dracula film that had vivid red blood and a whole lot of bosoms. Oh, yes. 
Well, no, I might be thinking of uh, Bram Stoker's, so I don't know. Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, I guess I would also say, and everyone had an English accent. I don't know. A whole lot of bodices and a whole lot of vibrant red corn syrup blood. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with these. I don't know that I have watched these. I know what they are, though. Yeah, this is like the super classic stuff. I might have watched this, The Curse of Frankenstein, and I may have watched this Dracula before, but I, I'm not sure. It, they look familiar, though. These like super, super classic monster movies I think I've seen when I was young, if they were at least appropriate enough. Definitely not the type of stuff I seek out now. Yeah, with the Hammer films, that could go either way, so hard to say. Yeah. Circling back, thinking about the production design on this episode and how generally good it is, going back to the previous episode, there were no Lady Di posters. The only time we got an image of her was when Ryan was drawing basically age lines on her photo on her album cover, but there were no posters. And that's kind of surprising to me given that last episode we both said I thought her name was Lady Di, as in Lady Diana, but no, it's Lady D-I-E. Right. With any other show, that would almost be a patently absurd statement. Like, if there wasn't some kind of spin on it, why would a performer just call themselves Lady Di? If there was a punk rock band in England that just called themselves President Obama, like, what, yeah. like what sense does that make, you know? Yeah. yeah. If you don't put a spin on it, then what's the point? So, so yes, it is still a reference to Lady Diana, but the whole Lady Di thing, the D.I.E. did not occur to me because we didn't get one shot of cut to a scene, maybe the recording studio, maybe her green room where we get a big poster, right, that establishes her, has like an advertisement for an upcoming performance, and it says Lady Di, D.I.E., and then, you know, camera pulls back as she enters the room or something, and we establish both that she's a musician, but then also the way her name is spelled. And maybe that seems a bit on the nose, but come on. With this show, folks, 80s television, a show that aired at like 1 o'clock in the morning, I think being a bit on the nose is okay. Yeah, I agree. You know, the poster thing is an interesting point, and I thought in this Halloween episode, we hear music a few times in this episode, like people listening to rock on the radio, and I thought it would be a nice tie-in to have it be her song. I was half expecting it. And I don't, I don't know why I was expecting it, because I don't think this show has it together that much. But there's no reason why her song should go away, just because she's dead. So I, I thought they should have done that. That is a really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, they already paid for it, too. You might as well use it. Yeah, they should be referencing other things that have happened in the episodes prior. So I thought that would have been a fun way to do it. Have her song playing on the radio. Hear a little... uh like a lamb to the slaughter, you know? I was going to say, I assume you're not referring to I'm a little teapot. You're referring to wolves glittering higher. Yes, exactly. Glimmering. I'm sorry. I did it again. You said glimmering, right? I was just about to correct you. I figured you were. Beat you to the punch. Yeah, your brain does not like glimmering. Nope, I'm all about the glittering. <laughs> Since this episode had a mortuary, thoughts? I would love your expertise. I was expecting worse. It was not bad. The thing that struck me as really bizarre, though, was they, like, had the worst time finding a body that hadn't died a violent death. Yeah, I thought that seemed weird, too. I'm like, you know how rare it is that people die violent deaths? Unless they're living in what? Like, I'm trying to think of a really... Detroit or something? <laughs> um, I don't know. And even in Detroit, I don't think it's that common. I'm like, it, it's... It, there, there should have been like one violent death amongst a ton of natural deaths. It was just really strange. They kept opening cabinet after cabinet being like, huh, why are these people dying so bloodily? Bloodily? Is that a word? So bloody. <laughs> I don't know. It was just 
It seemed a strange predicament to be in. Yeah, I agree completely. They needed some padding, so that's what they came up with. Yeah, a strange, very odd choice. As far as the actual set itself, uh, not not bad. I thought their sets in general were pretty decent in this episode. What did you think? As far as I can tell, the place seemed like a real mortuary. Although I have to say, I'm not buying the old west, old timey coffins. If you do cremations and you put someone in a wooden coffin, <laughs> don't you just, doesn't everything just become dust and you lose it through the grates of the conveyor belt? That's valid. You got me there. I don't think that's how it works, guys. If anything, I thought you might have chimed in on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I guess I didn't think as hard in this episode as I usually do. And I watched it twice. Wow, that's dedication. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. I would tell you all about next week's exciting episode, but we're all caught up, so I have no idea. Oh, shit. We should watch it at the same time. We should, except that I can't prepare the script, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the Series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. I wasted a lot of time looking for a hockey mask in this episode's crowd scenes. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. Next week, we're getting the obligatory magician episode out of the way early. Take care until then, and always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>